today is Hello Sonoma, welcome back. My guest today is Arthur Dawson. He is an author and a historian with a deep understanding of our world and a passion for our beautiful Sonoma Valley. I can't wait to get started. Hello Sonoma and welcome back. Again, I'm here with my wonderful guest, Arthur Dawson. Arthur, how are you doing today? I'm doing really good, Francisco. Thanks I'm for having me. Yeah, I'm so happy to have you here. Um, because, okay, so your official title is a historical consultant, but you've also been a historical ecologist, which you've described as being part detective, part environmental scientist, and part storyteller. How do you weigh each of those at any one time? Uh, kind of really depends what I'm doing. If I'm, um, you know, if I'm uh, standing in front of a bunch of kids, then I would be a storyteller. <laughs> and if I'm looking deeply into the, the history of fire and vegetation, then I'm a historical ecologist and, and um so that's kind of the whole spectrum from from uh, the lyrical to the scientific. The lyrical to the scientific. Yeah, I like that you have to wear different hats at different times, even within your great sombrero of being a historical <laughs> ecologist. And I, and I do feel like, um, you know, none of those, um, to get the whole story, you have to look at the whole thing. You yeah. know? And so if you ignore the people and the kind of the emotional content, then you're, you're missing something if you only look at the scientific piece and vice versa. So. Yeah, absolutely. Well, so some of what you do or did included things like interviewing neighborhood elders, poring over historical Mexican maps, checking census records to see who lived in a particular place and what they did for a living, estimating the age of oak trees, walking a property to figure out the historical drainage patterns. You called them the clues, the pieces of the puzzle that when put together, tell the story of the land. How do you translate all of this into a story of the land that people can really understand and appreciate? Uh, well, one of the techniques that I use is I, I go out and just collect, um, you know, everything I can think of that might have something to do with, with that particular piece of property. So if, I've been doing it long enough now that I know where all the, you know, all the, the nuggets are held, <laughs> hidden. So, uh, you know, there's like, there's the ones you mentioned, the census and the local library and then talking to local people. And then <clears throat> I usually construct um, a timeline. So I, oh. I have some kind of a way to take all these pieces that are, you know, they're different puzzle pieces, but they all do fit together if you put them together in a timeline. That's really fascinating. And so by collecting, you're talking about historical artifacts that you can collect. Uh, more like bits of information. Right. So um, That's yeah. what I meant. Yeah. Uh, do you ever collect like physical items too? Uh, occasionally, yeah. Like I found a, a piece of a, of a railroad spike oh. in Glenelg near the old railroad. So when they took the tracks out, I've, I've heard that they used to um, – when they were taking the tracks out, they would get out there early in the morning when it was cold, and they would hit the spikes with uh, sledgehammers, and then they would break off. Oh. Um, that was probably the 1930s, so I found half of a spike. Wow. Well, that's cool that you can weave together these different uh, pieces of information and sometimes physical artifacts to, to tell a story. And so once you have a timeline, that helps you kind of place new information and give you more context for what's happening? Exactly, yeah. And, and then... Um, you know, I do use some, I use my imagination to um, try to make links between various things. Like, you know, why did the Keene family buy the Glen Oaks Ranch in 1890? I mean, they came from Peoria. You know, what was the, <laughs> why would you make that kind of a move? So Yeah, um, and there's only so much you can find out in records. Right, yeah. Well, part of the way that you've also done stories is reflected in some of the things that you've done. You've done the Sonoma Creek Oral History Project. Uh, you've established and developed the Sonoma Valley Historical Ecology Archive, Sonoma Creek Sediment Source Analysis, 
California Central California Coast Coho Salmon Recovery Plan, and you've also headed things like the Sonoma Valley Watershed Walk and the Sonoma Valley Water Forum, a lot of diverse pieces of the puzzle, as you mentioned. And you've said that to understand current environmental challenges requires knowledge of how our landscape has evolved through time. How has your in-depth in understanding of systems and patterns in nature changed the way you live your daily life around here? Uh, good question. Well, I'll tell you one thing. Um, you know, we live in Glen Ellen, and, and we may get into the fire later, but but our house burned in 2017. And so it's it's been really interesting to watch uh, the land recover. Mm. And so what I'm trying to do, and this is based partly on conversations I've had with uh, indigenous folks, is just... Um, you know, encourage the native plants. I'm not necessarily trying to wipe out all the non-natives, but just yeah. encourage the... So this year we had a, a great bloom of uh, native uh, lupins on my property that Whoa. just appeared. I never, I didn't plant them. They just appeared. Isn't that uh, so, incredible? So stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah, that's... that's. Uh, I, I like that idea of just encouraging the native plants. You mentioned that you were speaking with some indigenous people. Um, what were you talking with them about? Uh, it was mostly related to a, a project that I just finished with uh, Cal Fire, uh, which was looking at the, the fire history and the vegetation history. Um, and the, the bulk of the project was really looking at the last 150 years. So um, <clears throat> taking vegetation maps and surveys and going back to 1870, and then also uh, taking the fire record, which Cal Fire has really good maps. And then you can take that and you can extend it by looking at newspaper articles. And they'll say, you know, so-and-so's ranch burned and this many acres were wow. burned. So, so that was kind of the recent historical piece. Uh, but then part of the project was to talk to some indigenous elders and, and get their perspective on how things had changed. And uh, one of the most telling things that anybody said, this was uh, a man named uh, Redbird Willie, who's the uh, stewardship coordinator out at um, Heron Shadow, mm -hmm. which is a, a place out in Grayton. And he looked at the maps and he said, well, yeah, that's how the place looks when it's not being taken care of properly, which was, uh, it took me back for a second. And I thought, wow. well, no, I think he's right. I think, you know, that's exactly what's happened is, is uh, um, yeah. And the interesting thing about those, the, the oldest vegetation data that we have is that it, there was a lot, there's less trees and more chaparral and more open areas. Yeah, you talked in, uh, I can't remember which book it was because you've written so many about how there are so many uh, open spots of land where there were no trees uh, and that's hard to find now. Yeah, we filled in quite a bit. And uh, one of my favorite descriptions was, <clears throat> excuse me, from a man named uh, Frank Marriott who mm -hmm. came through Sonoma Valley in 1851 or 1852. And as he was riding up the valley, he said, um, it looks like you're always about to enter an oak forest that you never quite get to because the trees are spaced so far apart that in the distance they look like a massive forest. Wow. And as you go forward, they just sort of open up and you keep you keep going. And it just it's like trying to get to the end of the rainbow. Yeah. Um, wow. Well, another place that kind of has that mystical never getting to the end quality is Sonoma Mountain, which its peak sometimes can be hard to find. Even when you're on the peak, right. yeah. you're like, <laughs> am I on the peak? And some of your recent work has certainly changed changed my life. Um, so this book that you wrote called uh, Sonoma Mountain, Where the World Begins, uh, covers geology, water, esoteric groups, human history, conservation history, all through the lens of personal experience. You say that the mountain likes to play tricks on us, like with the peak. It sits right in the middle of hundreds of thousands of people, and most of them pay it no mind. In fact, couldn't even point to it. For those listeners who haven't given it much thought, could you just tell us a little bit about our beautiful Sonoma Mountain? 
so that's that's one of the most significant things, I think, is the fact that it's right in the middle of, you know, it sits in the middle of Sonoma, Santa Rosa, Petaluma, Katati. Um, you know, it's just surrounded by, by cities and towns and vineyards. And it's it's a semi wilderness. You know, there there are people living up there, but it's a it's managed to maintain somewhat of a balance between the natural world and the the human world. And you know, we've got mountain lions up there. I got I got charged by a mountain lion on Sonoma Mountain. Um, so that's an indicator that it's a pretty healthy place. What was uh, that like? Uh, it was it was scary afterwards. Right at the time, I just kind of reacted, and then uh, you know, I was running, and the lion was running. I, I didn't know what it was, but I heard something running towards me through the bushes, and I stopped and turned around, and a lion came out of the bushes about 30 feet away, and then we just stared at each other for, it felt like 10 minutes, but it was probably only, you know, 30 seconds, uh, and then it finally turned around and ran off the other way. Wow. And that's when I got scared. <laughs> you know, I didn't have time to be scared before that. Yeah, uh, that's so special. So the mountain is in the middle of this huge population area. It's the headwaters, I guess, of three different watersheds. Uh-huh, that's right. It plays a super significant role in our local ecosystem that we don't even think about. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's um, you know, it deserves, it deserves a lot of appreciation, I think. It does. That, um, and that's what I'm trying to promote. Is... Well, you're doing a great job. You wrote the book on the mountain itself, specifically during doing writer's retreats at Sonoma Mountain Ranch Preservation Foundation. Of the experience, you said you were alone, but not lonely. You felt a sense of camaraderie with others who had come to Sonoma Mountain seeking something. What was it like writing about such a special place by living in, on, and around it? Um, you know, I, I got to take uh, several weekends of retreat up at the, at the basically the headquarters cottage of, of Sonoma Mountain Ranch mm-hmm. Preservation Foundation. And, and that was an amazing experience just to be up there, like you mentioned, by myself, uh, just me and 600 acres of, at the top of the mountain. Um, so that's part of my relationship with the mountain. And another part is the fact that I live in Glen Ellen and from my backyard, I look up at Sonoma Mountain every day and it kind of feels like a companion. Yeah. You know, it's this, it's this consistent presence. And, um, and so it's just kind of, a, um, I just kind of expect it to be there and it's, um, I just enjoy having it close at hand, kind of shoulder to shoulder. Yeah. It's pretty amazing as a place. I mean, I even... Never really knew it was a mountain. <laughs> I didn't even know it really had a name until a couple of years ago. And there it is on the western side. It creates the border of the western side of our valley. Um, did it give you a new appreciation for the mountain that you sometimes call Old Slumpy? Uh, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, well, one of the things when I first started doing the, the research on the book, um, and I'd already done a lot of stuff before that, but I, I started diving in. I found a book called um, The Infinite City. Mm. By I think it's by Rebecca Solnit, and and it immediately occurred to me like this is the infinite mountain. Interesting. You know, even though it's a, a small mountain, you know, it's only twenty five hundred feet high, not even that. Um, and like you said, you can't really tell where the top is. Um, but even a, a mountain of of this size is still an infinite in the sense that you'll never you can never learn all the stories that are that are there, and they're constantly being created. So. Uh, it's kind of it's the source I think of in a lot of ways. Yeah, I mean that's the idea of the title of the book, where the world began. I'm wondering if you'll read this. This is there's a great visual, visualization with which you conclude the book, highlighting just how long Sonoma Mountain has been here. In human terms, the mountain has been here forever, and will be here forever. Changes are, and it's a humbling thought. It will be here long after we, as a species, are gone. All the more reason to be humble, to approach the mountain with awe and appreciation, 
to treat it with reverence and yes, love. What a great way to talk about this incredible mountain. I'm wondering, yeah, what and I th- you know one of the, well, one of the things I I learned about the mountain the more I thought about it and spent time on it during the writing of that book was was how um, yeah how humble it is you know it's it's this incredible place uh, there's a description in the book of the first time I ever got to the summit was which was many years after I moved to Glen Ellen uh, for a long time there was somebody who lived near the summit who would kind of yeah. run people off <laughs> yeah and I tried going up there once and, and we saw my friend and I saw somebody kind of coming towards us through the trees, not looking too happy. And so we ran downhill. <laughs> um, but, you know, eventually it became public land. And um, and so when I finally got up there, it was like, it was mind-blowing, just the views from the top, which eventually will be open to the public. It's, it's already part of the uh, regional parks system, but they've got to create a trail and stuff. Yeah. Um, but you can see, um, you know, easily 60 miles on most days. There's there's some days that I haven't quite seen that you can see the Sierra from the top and possibly even Mount Lassen. Uh, I haven't confirmed that, but theoretically you could see Mount Lassen. Yeah, there's a great map in the book that talks about the other peaks that can either see or be seen by Sonoma Mountain. Right, yeah. And what I thought was really cool um, is through in this visualization you talk about how the mountain was underwater a long, long time ago. I mean, it's been around for millions and millions of years. And um, how even when they were doing the Zen Center, one of the founders there found, you know, fossils raking in the garden. And then the the story of how the world began from there has this idea of the mountain being underwater and being just a little tip sticking out mm-hmm. and then the water draining away. And I thought that was such a cool parallel. Maybe you could just share for those who don't know the story of uh, where, this, where th- this idea came from, where the world began. Well, it comes from, uh, there's a, a Coast Miwok story that uh, was recorded uh, in the early 20th century, um, and it's in a little book called Dawn of the World, and, um, and it, it talks about um, Oye the Coyote Man. Um, he's out on the ocean, and there's, there's no land anywhere in sight, and then eventually he sees the very top of, of uh, Sonoma Mountain, or Unapais as they called it, um, sticking up above the primordial ocean, and so he goes over and he lands his boat, which is uh, basically a, a boat made out of tules, which mm-hmm. is a, a craft, a common craft back in those days, and then uh, landed on the top, and um, and then slowly, as you said, the water came down, went down, and you know, I just, just have to say, I, I used to tell that story uh, fairly often to people and to uh, school kids. And uh, one thing that's, that has happened since I've been in, in uh, Sonoma County is it feels like uh, the indigenous voices are becoming much stronger. Mm. And so I'm more hesitant to really, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not of that culture. I appreciate the stories, but I'm, I kind of feel like I should leave those stories to be told by the people that they came from. Definitely. So, yeah. Well, I'm glad that you can act as a kind of uh, a bridge to helping spark curiosity in so many different people who now are curious about the stories that, that are all around us. I'm curious what it feels like to share the experiences of the mountain and all of the different knowledge that you've accumulated with other people through this book, finally. Well, it was a, it was a, a very um, inspiring experience. I think it's, it's the most satisfying project I've ever done. Really? And um, for a whole variety of reasons. Uh, well, for one thing, um, you know, I'm on the board of Snow Mountain Preservation, and uh, we got a, somebody just gave us uh, $10,000 uh, back in like 2016 and said, use this for whatever you think would do the, the most good for the mountain. 
And we spent a long time thinking about, you know, should we take down fences? Should we, you know, start an education program? Mm -hmm. and, and we finally settled on doing a book. And I had kind of wanted to do a book for many years. And, and so I had a vision for what it could be. And so I ended up being, you know, basically being hired to do the book. Um, but I think, you know, so I had a vision, but the inspiring thing was that other people came to it and brought their own visions. Yeah. And so it really was a community process. It's really, a, uh, you know, the whole community loves Snow and Mountain, and that, that shows through in the book. And then once the book was published, um, you know, we had several book launches, uh, one in Santa Rosa hosted by the Land Trust, and, and uh, like 250 people showed up at the Finley Center. Wow. Which was just incredible, you know. Yeah. Um, and then we had another big one at, in, here in Sonoma, like maybe 200 people. Um, and so that... That showed me, you know, before that happened, I, we had kind of thought, well, you know, yeah, people like Sonoma Mountain, but, you know, how many of us are there? You know, there's people that live close to the mountain, love it. Uh, but we realized that, that really Sonoma Mountain really is the, the center of the South County. And like you said, 250,000 people live within sight of it. Um, so so there's a lot of love for the mountain out there that we didn't even didn't realize until the book came out, which so that was that was cool. Yeah, it was really cool. And and as I mentioned before, what I think it does is it's uh, accessible. It has beautiful pictures in it and beautiful oral histories of different people, even interviews by Charles Schultz interviewing other elders in the community. So it it's really helps answer some of the questions that we maybe had about this mountain in our backyard. But more importantly, it's helped spark curiosity and interest in learning more. That, that was the intent, yeah, was to, when we did the book, we'd we wanted to uh, basically raise the profile of the mountain, you know, so people could people would start really seeing it. Well, you've done a wonderful job. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with Arthur, Arthur Dawson on Hello Sonoma. Hello Sonoma, welcome back. I'm here with my guest, Arthur Dawson. We were just talking about the incredible Sonoma Mountain and the contributions you've made to help elevate its profile. I'm wondering... We've talked about a lot of your expertise that you've developed here in this area. I know that your parents had this uh, had this idea that you should be a scientist. You came from a scientific background. Your father was even shortlisted for the Nobel Prize. Was this part of your journey what you expected when you got your Bachelor's of Science in Natural Resources? Uh, not really. I really didn't know what direction I was going to go. I you know, graduated with a yeah, uh, Bachelor's in Natural Resources uh, and a minor in Biology and another minor in History. Oh, cool. And I had no idea how I'd put them all together. And, uh, and then my wife and I traveled the world for several years after college, um, you know, traveling and working. And then when I and I always wanted to be a writer as well. So um, so I started writing poetry while we were traveling. And uh, when we when we got back to California, um, Jill had grown up in Sonoma Valley and we had lived in Marin for a few years before that. And it's a little too busy for us. And her brother was here. So we go, let's let's try Sonoma Valley. So. We ended up finding a place in Glen Ellen, and we've lived on the, the same side of the street now in three different places for over the last 30, it's going on 34 years that I've been there. Did you have an idea of what you wanted to do, what you wanted to be when you quote-unquote grew up when you signed up for that, uh, those degrees? Not really. I, I mean, I, I was just, uh, like Joseph Campbell says, I was following my bliss. Hmm. So, you know, I, I love the outdoors. I love nature. Um, and then I've, I've always loved writing as well. So that was, uh, that was a piece. I didn't get an English degree, but that was, uh, you know, certainly been part of my, my thoughts for what I wanted to do. Yeah, absolutely. A lot of, as we mentioned, weaving together different parts of life and, and experiences. I 
can't overstate the depth of knowledge that you have for our region's ecology, but even beyond academic understanding, nature has been so much more than something you observe, but something you truly experienced. I know you mentioned you lost your home in the 2017 fires. The only thing you saved was a brick? Uh, not, that's not quite accurate, but, but close to it. We had about 15 minutes to evacuate. And so, and you know, this is two o'clock in the morning and, you know, trying to figure out what to wear and <laughs> for an evacuation. Yeah. And, um, so we grabbed, you know, a very small number of things. I did grab a nice, some family portraits that we had. So I got some of that. There's a you know, couple heirlooms that we managed to get. Um, and then, yeah, then we had to evacuate and couldn't get back on the property for almost two weeks. And so when we finally got back there, uh, my friend Steve Lee showed up and we were going through the rubble. Uh, and it was just, you know, the whole house had been reduced to just ash. And he pulled out this brick and the brick was actually something we had had, had in the kitchen the, from Jill's grandmother, who had been through the San Francisco earthquake and fire in 1906, wow. who had gone back to her house after that house burned and pulled this brick out of the, the rubble. And so... We've now got this artifact that's been through two of the worst disasters in California history. Wow, that's incredible. Um, but so you said that the first off, that the fire separated the most important things from the lesser ones and that you have your lives and your memories. For those of us who didn't directly experience it or who may not have been around then, can you tell us a little bit about what it was all like? Well, it was just kind of crazy. Um, you know, my son actually woke us up. He was 17 at the time. and, and uh, he had a bunch of friends in Santa Rosa, and they were texting, you know, because they were getting, you know, getting evacuated too, and and they're saying, you know, we think Glen Ellen's in trouble also. So he came in our bedroom, and and as we were talking, um, we got up and we looked on the news, couldn't find anything on the news, couldn't find anything online, and then the sheriff's truck went by, or the sheriff's car went by, and said, you know, there's a big fire coming, you need to evacuate. That's that's all you got. That was it, yeah. And we thought they were talking to the the hotel across the street. But then we realized now they're talking to everybody on the street. And wow. so, you know, so we threw the pets in the car. Uh, we started grabbing stuff out of the house. And, um, and then the, the sheriff came back about 15 minutes later and said, you need to evacuate immediately. So you go, okay, I guess, I guess this is it. We got to get out of here. We, it was really smoky, but we could not see any flames. We're kind of behind a little hill um, from where the fire came from. Uh, this was the nun's fire. So, um, so we never saw any flames, and we started driving, and we went to a friend's house who's down on Madrone Road, about two miles away. And they're good enough friends, uh, the Eagles, that we could just knock on their door at 3 o'clock in the morning oh and gosh. say, you know, we just got evacuated. Can we spend the night here? And uh, which, you know, in the long run, they appreciated. I mean, they were totally willing to let us stay there, and, you know, that gave them more warning of what was coming. And then to uh, speed up a little bit, um, but then we had to evacuate. Well, we found out our house was gone the next morning. We went, tried to drive back in, and the road had been blocked off, but our, our neighbor was, had gotten in beforehand and was coming out, and they said, yeah, it's all gone. It's just like a war wow. zone. So, I mean, in some ways I'm thankful for that because I didn't worry about anybody trying to loot my house. It was like, okay, it's, there's nothing. You know, you, you just kind of got to move on. And, um, and so then, but then that same day we had to evacuate because our, our friends got evacuated from Madrone. So then we evacuated a few more miles wow. down the valley to Boys Springs and spent, I think, two nights there. And there was no evacuation order for that spot, but it was getting so smoky that we just decided, we went down to some friends in, uh, outside of Nicasio in Marin. Wow. Where it was a lot better, but it's still kind of smoky. And since then, you've 
really done a lot to understand the patterns of fires in that area. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, I'm, uh, I mean, it's kind of one of the weird uh, silver linings of this whole experience is that it, it was actually a, a, a good for my business as a historical <laughs> ecologist. So. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I, let's see, I'm trying to think. So back, like, well, let me just put one little segue here. So, yeah, we rebuilt. And as we were moving back into the house in April of 2020, we were wearing masks again, but not because of smoke, but because of, the, of COVID. Wow. So that was just bizarre. You know, interesting tie-in. Combination yeah. of uh, you know, disasters. Um, so then that same year, 2020, um, well, actually I had, uh, I won't go down to the weeds on this one, but uh, anyway, Pepperwood and I, um, I had, had approached Pepperwood Preserve about doing a joint project uh, under CAL FIRE funding. And in the summer of 2020, we got the go-ahead to, to start. And basically, it was looking at uh, fire and vegetation history over the last 150 years, which I mentioned a little bit earlier. And so basically what it was, it was taking um, you know, different um, vegetation maps and some, you know, they're all different eras. So there's recent vegetation maps that were done by the county. There's ones that were done by Fish and Wildlife in the 1990s. Uh, there's other ones that were done by UC Berkeley back in the 1930s. And then if you go even further back, there's uh, early surveys done by government surveyors where they're required to record the vegetation uh, along the survey lines. So, and I've, you know, I've worked with this stuff long enough that I, I had a, a good idea how to approach it and basically finding ways to make the different data line up so that you could you could say this actually changed right rather than being putting unsure. all kinds of different non-fitting maps one on top of the other and figuring out where they are where they fit right yeah so and and part of the trick was to um was to simplify everything into uh, there's three major vegetation life forms there's herbs or grasses shrubs and woodland or forest so all that data that, that i mentioned you can you can all be boiled down to those three categories and then you can take it from there and you can Sometimes you can drill down to much more detail, mm. but at the very least you can, I mean, one of the most interesting things uh, that was a change is there's a lot of these old survey lines from like 1870, and this is like a mile of sur survey line, and the surveyor wrote down mostly only chaparral. Really? So it gives you a pretty clear picture of what it was like 150 years ago, and some of these places, you go back to them today, and they're full-on forest. I mean, they're, in some cases, they're like dead chaparral under dying oak trees under full-blown uh, Douglas fir forest. So it just it speaks to the amount of change that's happened. Um, and that's, you know, there's a whole variety of how much confidence, uh, you know, you can have in some of the results. But that's that's one. There's just high confidence that, that that's happened. <laughs> you know, there's no doubt that you're not going to write down mostly chaparral when it's mostly forest. It, <laughs> yeah. It's just uh, it, it would. That's a pretty big yeah. distinction. Wow. And so uh, you've been able to map where these different, f not only vegetation have been, but where the different fires have been over the years based on those kind of data points. Yeah. And the, the fires, I think I mentioned earlier, are mapped from, from CAL FIRE back to the 1940s. And then before that, using um, narrative sources like uh, newspapers. And one of the most interesting things, and these are, these are all areas that um, CAL FIRE had deemed were fire prone. So there's one that kind of straddles the Myakamas, one study area that is just east of Glen Ellen. Another one was up um, kind of northeast of Guerneville. 
which there are some fire prone areas up there as well. And there's another one in Napa and another in Lake County. And so, but even within these fire prone areas, there's a wide variety of fire histories. Yeah. So like directly east of Glen Ellen, there's one area that I just called the frequent burn zone. And, you know, in 150 years, there's been like seven fires in this, like, I forget exactly how big it is, but let's just say 4,000 acres. Wow. I would not build a house in that no. place. And it makes you realize, like, you know, we're still trying to get used to the idea of, of you know, what a place fire has in this landscape. Um, but when, and, and so well, to give you an example of how that's worked, in, in on the eve of the 2017 fires, if you had looked at the Cal Fire maps, and this is not to disc Cal Fire, but you would have said, oh, okay, I live on Cave Dell Road, and there's been one fire here in 1964. Mm-hmm. So maybe it's just a random chance that happened. Well, if you start looking at the fire history and you realize, well, there was a fire in 64, but there also was a fire in 1936, and there was a fire in 1923, and there was a fire in 1880. Yeah. And you realize, you know, this is not only, uh, it's not a random thing. It's it's happened over and over again. And, you know, when you see three, four, five times in a row, you realize this is going to happen again. It's just, there's just no doubt yeah. uh, that it's going to come back. And one of the things that uh, one of the um, indigenous elders told me was that, um, you know, we consider fire a member of the community, one that is far older and wiser than we are. And I think, you know, that's the direction. I know it's a, it's a stretch, uh, but I really think we need to start trying to think that way because it really is a part of the community in the sense that it's, it's, it'll be, it's going to come back. And the more we try to keep fire out when it does come back, it's going to be just that much more intense. I'm so glad that you mentioned that because when people think of fire, it's like an immediate fear reaction of, oh my gosh, I don't know what we're going to do. And it's kind of like having that reaction to the ocean. Like the ocean is a very, very scary thing too, if you think about it. But there's a certain respect and kind of back and forth that we've developed with this incredible other force. I'm wondering if you'll read this part of a poem, I think, that you wrote uh, soon after uh, the fire. Oh, yeah. This is, um, yeah, just a little bit of background. So there was a... um I had an elderberry at the top of my property that after the fire, it was just a bunch of blackened sticks. And I would never have imagined that it was going to come back. And a friend of mine who's an indigenous Californian from uh, Santa Barbara, but who's lived here um, for many decades, uh, Judy, um, I invited her to come gather uh, elderberries with me. And, and so we did a little prayer beforehand. And, and um, so that's what, where this uh, excerpt from the poem comes from. Uh, it's called Gathering Elderberries with Judy. Today I give thanks for a blackened elderberry that returned as green as a fountain, healthier than ever. For your presence and a glimpse of the old ways with all their beauty and heart logic. For circles that come together again after months and lifetimes. For the fire which created the void into which so many gifts could fall. Thank you for reading that. Yeah, thank you. Can you tell us about some of those gifts? Uh, well, one one gift that, that Jill and I every day pretty much appreciate is the fact that we're in a brand new home. I mean, um, well, uh, let me, I'll back up a little bit on that one. So, yes, we lost our home. We lost a lot of family heirlooms. Um, you know, as you mentioned, you know, we kind of realized this is all just stuff. Even the heirlooms are at some level are just stuff. But... Um, but we filled the house with, with things from our friends and, and things that we love. 
And one of the gifts after the fire was uh, Jill had a, we had a um, family heirloom wall clock with a you know, pendulum clock that came from uh, her mom who grew up in Germany. And so it had been on the wall of, of you know, the house in Germany for, for a long time. It was, I'm not sure how, far, how old it was, but probably at least 100 years old. And it was part of the soundscape of our home was the chiming and the tick-tock of this clock. Well, when we went back, uh, the same, same return trip when we found the brick, um, we also found the remains of the clock. Um, and we also found the key that went to the clock, which Jill's mom and her grandmother had also used. And the guy that was helping us that day, besides Steve Lee, um, and I apologize, I can't remember his name, he's from Marin, um, he, he said, you know, I used to be an antique dealer, and I might, if you send me a picture of your clock, I might be able to find something online. Oh, and so, so he sure, said, sure, that would be great. And so about a year later, uh, he emailed us and he said, this kind of looks like your clock. <laughs> and it was a clock on, it was being sold on eBay from Estonia. And... And so Jill said, well, can, he, can the person send like a recording of the chime? And they sent it and goes, yeah, that, that really sounds like our clock. Um, and so, so we ordered it. And it cost as much to have it shipped as it was to, to buy it. <laughs> um, and it wasn't that much. It was like, a, I forget, but it wasn't that much. And we got it and put it up on the wall. And sure enough, the old key fit the new clock. Oh, wow. <laughs> so the story of that clock is it's bigger than it was you know it's it's uh, and, it, and it speaks to just the generosity of people and the gratitude that we feel for the so many people that helped us um and i just want to do a real quick shout out to margie and rich foster who um let us live on their property in a trailer while we rebuilt uh, just the most generous sweetest people um not only in glen ellen but i think maybe on the planet just incredible yeah, absolutely. And you mentioned that uh, some indigenous people were saying that fire is a part of our community, and it can also help create community in the, as you mentioned, the void that it leaves behind. Mm -hmm. And it's incredible those kind of connections that have been f made because of uh, of that event and the events that followed. Yeah, and if, and if I could follow up on that just a little bit, so yeah, I think fire does create community, and I also think that that it doesn't have to be a disaster. Mm -hmm. And let me give you a, an example. Um, so I mentioned Heron Shadow, which is um, it's being run by the Cultural Conservancy for the benefit of, of indigenous people. Um, and so they had a, a, a cultural burn out there uh, not too long ago. And they told me the story of it. And that is, is that, um, you know, they, they wanted to do a burn. Um, they only have seven acres. It's not a huge property. So they started talking to their neighbors and just telling them, this is we're hoping to do this. You know, we'd like to get you on board. Here's how it's done. You know, here's all the steps we would take. Um, you know, they got all the official permits to do it. And then, and the neighbors were very interested. So the neighbors, you know, they invited the neighbors to just look over the fence while they were burning. And so on the day of the fire, they, you know, they lit the fire and they also allowed, um, you know, teenagers to throw like little uh, hand grenades from Douglas fir cones into the grass, like which, you know, as a 14 year old. <laughs> pine cones that you could light on fire and throw into the grass. Yeah, it's died and gone to heaven if you get to do that. Yeah. Um, and um, and so it was a huge success, and it also sounded like a lot of fun, you know, which you don't really think of with fire. But um, you know, it was another community builder, and um, and when they were done, their neighbors, some of their neighbors came and said, you know, can you do that on our property? Yeah. So it, it took away that fear, and and uh, you know, made it, and and it's making everybody safer for you know, it's not going to, there won't be a huge 
conflagration in that area because it's you know it's being culturally burned. Um, so I know it's another big stretch, but it's it's something. And there's you know there's many people working towards uh, you know also sometimes called prescriptive burning, which is which is a little bit it's similar to cultural burning, but it's a little bit different. And I, I won't go into the details of that right now. But yeah. cultural burning really is part of the culture, and and um, you know one of the benefits is is it is as I mentioned, teenage boys getting to play with fire under supervision. <laughs> Whereas, you know, in our culture, we say, no, that's, you, know, you don't play with fire, that's bad. Yeah, ever. And you get in huge trouble if you do. And yeah, and, I, and it, so it shames it, you know. And I don't think that's necessarily the, the best approach. I, I, I love the idea of, of just making a place for it and saying, okay, this is something, you know, these, these boys in particular are going to be attracted to this. Let's figure out how we can accommodate that. Yeah. So that's that's what I call, uh, you know, that's part of the indigenous wisdom of around all this. Well, I've got to say thank you so much for sharing a little bit about your history and about your story in this particular experience, which I'm sure was very challenging at the beginning. Uh, it's probably still challenging now, um, but I think it's important that we share it and that we share the other ways in which we can view fire as a part of our community and uh, putting a place for it where it might be. We're going to be right back with our conversation with Arthur Dawson after this. Hello, Sonoma, and welcome back. I'm here with my guest, Arthur Dawson. We were just talking about your personal history with uh, fire, having lost your home in the 2017 uh, fires. A lot of your work has revolved around history, specifically collecting oral histories from people throughout our community. You have one book that you wrote called Creek Wisdom, in which you interviewed elders from the community about their knowledge of the creek. What was it like diving back into history through people's stories specifically? Uh, well, I, I really... Um... You know, it came along at a really good point in time. I was I had done a lot of teaching with poets in the schools for about ten years, mm -hmm. and I was ready for, for kind of a switch in my work life. Yeah. And uh, then I was approached by a Richard Dale at the Ecology Center, who had they had some funding to do oral histories, and I thought, wow, this this would be great to like go to the other side of the age spectrum and, and talk to these old timers, you know, <laughs> who of course were remembering their youth. So that, that was kind of neat to to have that experience of getting to step back in time with them. Um, so I, I feel like I have a, a secondary memory that goes back to the early 1900s because I've, I've heard these stories secondhand from the people that live them. So it's, um, yeah, it's kind of a neat sense of, of having another, another memory uh, operating. Yeah, it's really cool. Um, talking about very specific areas of the creek, how they were growing up, how their parents were thinking or what their grandparents would say. It was a really fascinating dive into local creek, even if it might be too shallow to literally dive into. <laughs> there were places, yeah. Yeah. Uh, another one of your publications dove even further back into history to discover the names of familiar places throughout the valley. You wrote a poem, uh, maybe about the experience, and yet another book called Saying This Place Right. Maybe you could read it for me. It's sure, right, I I've got it, it's right uh, here. Let's see. Oh, that's okay. Yeah, that's a short one. That's fine. <clears throat> this is what I was just starting. Cocking one ear to the ground listening for the story of this land, untangling a syllable a month, if I'm lucky. <laughs> I really like that description, putting your ear uh, to the ground and maybe one syllable a month of understanding. Can you give us an overview of what it was like to learn more about the place names around here we take for granted? Um, well, it, it required, um, you know, delving into local languages. Um, so, um, <clears throat> you know, there was, there was a Coast Miwok was spoken here. That's, that's what we call it now. I'm sure the people who spoke it didn't think of it with that particular name. Uh, there's also were uh, the Wapo language, and then 
probably even some Pomo up toward the, the top of the valley. Um, so I spent a fair bit of time looking at, at dictionaries that had been compiled and comparing place names to some of those words because um, I figured they, they had to mean something. You know, they, <laughs> like some people just sort of throw up their hands and go, it doesn't make any sense. But uh, to give you a good example, um, so Petaluma, you know, there's there have been a lot of fanciful translations of Petaluma. You know, General Vallejo said it meant oh, fair veil, mm -hmm. like a very Victorian-sounding phrase. Um, and then somebody else in Petaluma did sort of a tongue-in-cheek book called Petalama, <laughs> you know, which, I, I don't know, you know, I think, anyway, my own, my own take on it, I, I much rather would know what it really means, uh, if possible. So I started looking into it, and as it turns out, there's, um, there are interviews that were done with a, a Miwok elder named Tom Smith back in the 1930s, and he said... Um, well, Petaluma means um, slope back. Ah. And so and an important part of this is to actually go to some of these places and then, and then see what does it look like, you know. So sure enough, if you go to Petaluma and you look at Sonoma Mountain, which Petaluma, by the way, was also um, the name of a, of a village at the base of the mountain. And, and I'm not, you know, it's possible it was applied to both the mountain from that side as well as the village. I, I can't say. But anyway, Petaluma means slope back. And if you look at Sonoma Mountain uh, from the Petaluma side, that's exactly what it looks like. It's a long sloping ridge. It's a slope back mountain. And I can imagine, you know, a lot of the indigenous names, my impression is they didn't really go for things that were particularly imaginative. Mm. And I think partly because if you were, say, trying to figure out where you were and you could see, oh, there's slope back off in the distance, you knew exactly where you were. Uh, so, you know, they certainly had a lot of imagination and stories and things like that, but the, the actual place names were, were, seem to have been fairly straightforward. Um, well, if you look at names in England or something where English was the native language for a long time, it's like Brighton, bright town or something, you know, it's very right. simple things. Yeah. It's like, yeah. this is what we need to know right now. Yeah. Um, so that's interesting. Yeah. I think that's very similar. Yeah. Yeah. So you wrote a whole book called The Stories Behind Sonoma Valley Place Names. Incredible dedication to your research, as you mentioned, with not one but four possible origin stories for the meaning of Sonoma, which I'll let people dive into in the book if they'd like. Um, others like Watma Road, Napa Street. It's really pretty incredible that you're able to get the history of these places that we just kind of go, oh, yeah, that's, you know, Watma. That's uh, what, what, what was that like? Uh, well, I've always been really curious. So, you know, and, and then being a writer, um, I've, you know, I've always I've done some traveling and I can't say I speak any other language as well, but or fluently, but I've I've dabbled in a number of different languages. So um, so it was interesting. Let me tell you one little story about trying to interpret, um, you know, some of these uh, some of these old names. Um, so you really have to think about, you know, who was it that first heard it and wrote it down? Mm. Um and so one example is there was a, um, there's a Mexican era map, and but there was an American sea captain who had claimed uh, the Willicos land grant, and his name was John Wilson. And I'm looking at the map, and it it says Don H U I T S O, and I go Don Huitzo, <laughs> and it's just so <laughs> I can't make sense of that. And I just kept saying it over and over again. Finally, I was like, oh, Don Huitzo. Huitzon, as you'd say it with a, a, a Spanish accent. That uh, is such a good example. And, um, you know, there's, uh, 
like uh, Wilicos, you know, if you think about it, well, we're Americans in, in Mexico, we're Americanos. Yeah. So it must have been where the Wilic people lived. The Wilicos was, was their place. Um, so, so it was fun to yeah, be a detective and try to figure these things out and take time with them and, and let, let ideas arise. And, and being a poet, I've, you know, I, I have a fairly well-trained imagination. Yeah. And this was kind of a special challenge because I, you know, I could, I could imagine things, but I couldn't just say, oh, Sonoma means place where the aliens landed. You know, yeah. I had to have reasons why, you know, even if it's somewhat speculative, I had to have things to back up the possibilities. So I'm sure people are sitting at the edge of their seat, but maybe you could share what you think Sonoma means or where it comes from. Sure. Yeah. So uh, the, the, there the are most, a couple options, but yeah, the most I'll give you the most plausible one. Um, and you can read about Chief Big Nose in my book. Yeah. Uh, but uh, the most plausible one is is that it's a WAPA word. And in, in which case, uh, WAPA is possibly the oldest uh, native language in California. It has no, uh, has no related languages, so it's, it's kind of an isolated language. So it could be the oldest uh, word that's been spoken in Cal that's is still being spoken in California. Um, and so if you look at uh, WAPO place names, uh, a lot of them have the suffix uh, Sonoma, and it's sometimes spelled T-S-O-N-O-M-A. Um, and so you can find places like Niklet Sonoma, uh, Naklet Sonoma. And so it's basically like a suffix, like, uh, you know, place to live, a, a town, a, a village, a burg, Healdsburg. So it's sort of like burg without healed. You know? <laughs> so, uh, in fact, one uh, Laura Somersall, I believe, who's a was a WAPO speaker, who still has descendants uh, who, who still speak WAPO, um, I think she said that she, that. Sonoma meant uh, abandoned camping place, which might just sort of be the implication of it doesn't like what happened at the beginning of the word. It's it's been abandoned. Yeah. Um, and you know the the original pronunciation of Sonoma I think was much more closer to well T S is like tsunami right mm -hmm. Sonoma, mm -hmm. and there's an American captain who wrote the word Sonoma in like the 1840s and he spelled it with a Z, Sonoma Sonoma. Really? So I think that's the, the authentic, uh, closer to the authentic. I don't can't say it's totally authentic, but it's Sonoma. Well, you heard it here today on Hello Sonoma. <laughs> Not exactly breaking news, but exciting news nonetheless. <laughs> or maybe it's Hello Sonoma. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, Hello Sonoma. So your historical knowledge is as wide as it is deep. Uh, besides these place names and, and ecological history, you've given talks on a history of magnolia farms from 1823 to 2010, the grandmother tree, 2,000-year-old redwood tree that's 14 feet in diameter in Jack London Park, early struggles for civil rights in California, Portrait of the Sonoma Plaza, Sonoma History Project, Sonoma Before the Mission, a Sonoma Valley water history. How often are you finding unexpected connections between all these various subjects? Uh, all the time, I'd say. <laughs> and the more I look into, the more I, the more I find them. You know, like like... Well, you just mentioned Magnolia Farm. Uh, that was that was the first uh, project I did as an independent consultant, and um, and I just recently got hired by the Regional Parks uh, Department to uh, work on the history of the Eighth Street East uh, bicycle trail that's that's coming in, or, oh. or bike path that's, yeah. that's going down Eighth Street. Um, and as it turns out, Magnolia Farm is right on Eighth Street East. So I just realized today, actually, that oh, I've already got all this <laughs> information collected. Yeah. So that's that's kind of cool, and it, and it gives a, you know, there's a, a lot of information uh, that's been collected about the 
kind of the uh, title history over there. It's very complicated title history, mm-hmm. which I won't go into, and I don't think is particularly interesting to the general public uh, at any kind of depth. But um, but um, personalities, I think, are always interesting to people. And um, so I'm gonna, I'll probably. And the, the interesting thing about Magnolia Farm is, is that it was settled in about 1850 by the McCracken family who uh, joined up with the Donners for part of the way across and then made a better decision <laughs> before they got oh here. Oh, my gosh. So their son, Willie McCracken, was friends with uh, with one of the Donner girls. And so, the Donner Street and, is named after. And then, they, and then suddenly, here they are. They come to school in Sonoma and go, oh, there's Willie McCracken. I knew him on the way across the country. Oh, my gosh. So, <laughs> wow, so many so many unexpected relationships. So uh, you've said that I'm you're fascinated by the relationship between people and places, how people see the land, use it, and change it, and how places change us. How do you think that this valley and your time in it has changed you? Uh, I like to think I've become uh, more generous. Uh, this is a, just a very generous place, you know, and, and I think the people really reflect that. And, um, you know, in the watershed walk that you mentioned, which I, I did years ago, uh, we did several of them. Um, at one point, I stopped to, to just uh, use a, go behind a tree to use the facilities, and I look over and Oh, look at that. There's a wild pear just growing out there. So I, I plucked a pear off of the tree and go, you know, in Snow Valley, you stop to take a pee and you find something to eat. You know? <laughs> so, um, you know, that's that's kind of the sense. Or or there's also, um, I've heard people who were here during the Depression. One of them said, well, you know, what Depression? Things didn't change that much. We always had enough to eat, you know. Wow. I'm sure there were hard times, but it was... There was enough natural abundance that, that uh, uh, people felt taken care of by the land. That's a pretty incredible perspective that you were able to put together. Um, so I, I, we've been talking a lot about local things, local Sonoma Valley, Sonoma Mountain, the Mayakamas, history of Sonoma. Um, and you've been very familiar with this small corner of the world. But there's a spot on your resume that just says world travel, <laughs> during which you spent three years traveling, living and working around the world visiting 21 countries, I think, in the Americas, Europe, Africa, and Asia, journeying by sailboat, elephant, dugout, canoe, steam train, and at least one bus. I know you were planning on writing a book about it, but could you tell us what you remember about that time? Uh, sure. And wait, just one quick correction. Uh, that's, that's one bus with no brakes. <laughs> <laughs> we rode plenty of buses, but one bus with no brakes. The brakes were four guys jumping off the bus holding logs in their hands. No way. And throwing them under the wheels as the, guy, as the driver geared down. <laughs> Yeah, that was uh, that was an experience. Um, so yeah, and it's a it's a obviously it's a long big long story, but um, you know some of my favorite places were uh, we we spent about seven months in Brazil. We ran out of money on the way to Brazil. Uh, we had family friends and in, in living in Rio, so we knew we had a place to go. Um, we came across the Chaco, which goes between Bolivia and uh, Paraguay. It's on a just a back road uh, like. 30 hours with uh, maybe one with one border crossing. That's about the only people you saw the whole way um, wow. in the back of a truck uh, with a bunch of other people and oil drums and a goat. And uh, and um, and then it, close to the end of that journey, we pull into this town. It had been settled by uh, Mennonites who were sort of like the Amish. And, you know, we'd been in Bolivia. Bolivia is you know, very poor. And we stop at this town. It's, it's like early evening. And there's this well-lit storefront, which just in and of itself was pretty unusual at that point. And walk in, and it was a it was a basically a German-style delicatessen with a <laughs> beer garden out back, really, <laughs> and flush toilets. <laughs> and 
And um, yeah, this place had been settled by Mennonites, I don't know, 50 years before, and it was just uh, just this juxtaposition. And um, um, so that was that was one amazing experience. And then Brazil is a place where, you know, people are like in this country, we listen to a lot of music, but I'd say in general, we don't make that much music. I mean, no offense to the musicians, you guys are, are doing an amazing job, but for the average person, there's not that much music being made. But in Brazil, you walk down the street, there's people tapping out rhythms, uh, you know, homemade instruments, uh, people singing. It's just like the music's just all around you. And that that is just a um, kind of a revelation to see how much music could be part of your life, you know, just your daily life. Um, and then let's see, what's another? Well, I, I, the, the bus uh, story happened in Uganda. So, you know, we, we were traveling to Kenya for a while, and that was amazing. You know, we saw all kinds of wildlife, like you can imagine. Um, and then we we decided we wanted to go uh, visit the pygmies in Uganda. And Uganda at that time, this was 1988. So it was about two years after Idi Amin had been overthrown. And I just found out the guy who overthrew him, uh, Museveni, is still in power. Wow. So we were there right at the beginning of that period. And it, you know, when you're traveling like that, we were just, you know, backpackers, basically, um, you know, you, you meet other travelers and you just find out, like, you know, they're coming from where you're going. And so you get information about, you know, what's up ahead and if you want to go, if you should go and things to be careful of. And um, and so, you know, we heard people had been to Uganda, you know, it was relatively safe. But, you know, you, you go into Uganda and, and there's every few miles the bus gets stopped at an armed roadblock and soldiers get on. Some of them are like, you know, 14 years old with a rifle that's taller than they are. And and you know, ask for your identity, and um, so a little unnerving. That's the most guns that we saw anywhere was in Uganda. Um, and there was, you know, and we spent about two weeks, and it took two weeks to travel 200 miles to see the pygmies and, and return. So that's how slow the travel was. Um, and you know, there's there's just everything was in shortage. So you go into a grocery store, and if it, the pandemic reminded me of this a little bit because you know there. They'd just be totally out of things, or if they had a shipment of bread that that came in, they would just fill up half of the, the shelves in the store with bread. It would be one kind of bread. We got bread, okay. And you know, there's a few, you know, maybe tubers over in the corner. Um, so you know, uh, everything was in shortage. Uh, we managed to get out to the pygmies, and that took a while. You know, it took uh, another bus trip and a ride in a jeep. Uh, one of the and the. It took two days to get out to the pygmies. It was only 30 miles. You know, it had to got a ride for part of the way and then hiked the last bit. And the town we ended up in, which was near the pygmies, um, you know, it was, well, it was, we, we saw kids like with, you know, distended bellies. You know, they were malnourished, obviously. And, and the pygmies themselves were much better nourished because they were living off of the jungle. Um, and, you know, we, I'm sure we got the best food in the village. And it was things like, you know, goat meat that was so tough you, you could never chew it enough to feel like you could swallow it, um, you know, and, and uh, you know, boiled bananas. And so after like three days and we were we were so hungry. Um, I mean, they there was a hot spring nearby. And so the, the guy we were staying with gave us and gave us each an egg. And he said, well, yeah, take this to the hot spring. You can you can boil it in the hot spring. So we took it out there and, and boiled it. And that was like the best hard boiled egg I've ever had <laughs> in my whole life. I mean, it's just. It's just what my body wanted, and and then and then we got to, we we got a ride back, and um, 
got into this town called Fort Portal, and there was actually a steakhouse in this town, which is oh just, my gosh. just bizarre. And so we went in, and you know, for almost nothing, we got an incredible steak dinner. Incredible. Um, you know, while people not very far away were starving. I mean, it's um, you know that all those things just make me so grateful for what I have today. Yeah, well, we could talk a lot more about those journeys than I would like to with you, Arthur. Um, There's a quote from Gary Snyder who said, our job is to become natives of where we live. And in your book, you ask a rhetorical question, why focus on such a small area? Because every place, no matter what size, is a unique creation. With just 30 seconds left, what do you wish either newcomers or outsiders knew about our beautiful Sonoma Valley? Well, just how, how precious it is and how, you know, we have to be careful because it's, you know, Little by little, things are, are being degraded. You know, it's, it's not in as good shape as it was 100 years ago, and, and we just have to keep an eye on things and, and fight, for, fight for the health of the ecosystem, which is also the health of the human community. Well, thank you so much, Arthur. It's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you today. Well, likewise, Francisco, and thanks for having me here. <laughs> and to all of you out there, thank you so much for tuning in, and remember that we've reached the end of this episode. It's not goodbye. It's hello, Sonoma.